Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Surprisingly enough, this episode continues our series on the Lenin and Russian Revolution and all the mess that happened around it. Now, this episode was supposed to be about Lenin in his youth years, so to speak, from the time when he turned 17 and finished college in 1893 up until Russian Revolution, basically about what Lenin did during the meantime, kind of glossing over the 1905 revolution as we covered that in the last episode. Now, the problem with this was that it turns out that Lenin is a bit of a bum. Oh, he's an interesting person. But what he does is, so to speak, weird, and mostly every, everything that has been documented is about it, more what about he wrote than what he actually did. So, I, I want to speak about this period, and I want to make sure that everything is clear and that we can move on, but, you know, we need interesting stuff that we can listen to. So, I have called to my aid Professor CJ, which you might know from Dangerous History Podcast. He's a colleague from Dark Myths. A very good friend of mine, and uh, yeah, a very knowledgeable person when it comes to revolutions and rebelling against things, as far as I know. P.S. Check out his show. Hi, CJ. Hey, hey. Good to be here. Oh yeah, you. By, by the way, you haven't. Be, you've been on PDRP, but you haven't been on the Eastern Border. So uh, why don't you give us a short, short version of what you're doing and who you are? Sure. Yeah, I do a podcast called the Dangerous History Podcast, and you can go to dangeroushistorypodcast.com to get to the homepage there. And I cover history from a point of view that's basically, for lack of a better term, individualist anarchist or market anarchist. And so, as such, I'm always very hostile to and skeptical to um, power. And um, usually where you find the biggest concentrations of power in the modern world is in the hands of the state. And so oftentimes those people and the people that are connected to it tend to end up in my crosshairs. So a, a much more um, 
cynical view towards those sorts of characters, the presidents, the kings, the prime ministers, and so forth, than you usually get in history. Well, that, that's that's what we're doing here as well, essentially, because a lot of because this this is oh boy, <clears throat> this is one of the episodes where I just don't know where to start because we moved we moved on to the to the killing of Alexander the Alexander the Lenin's brother, who who tried to kill the Tsar. So you know, so Lenin is seventeen. He finishes college, and this is where I started running into troubles. Uh, the first thing is that you know I have all these all these piles of books of you know Soviet books on Lenin, and obviously as as with every possible great leader, and I don't know maybe maybe it's something like you you have in America with your founding fathers. Um, I'm reading these books, and essentially in children's books, school textbooks, the first thing written in about Lenin in your Soviet history book, was that he was a great humanitarian. Like, you, you open you open your, your 10th grade Soviet history textbook. You want to know what Lenin is from Soviet Soviet viewpoint. I, open, I opened up the part where it, where it started to speak about Lenin, and the first thing was, I found out about three pages worth of what a great person Lenin was, and how he gave books to children, and what an awesome dude he was, and that he had very high moral characteristics. And after three pages of that nonsense, there was uh, some some few lines, and then there some few lines about what he actually did. Because later on, sure there were chapters in revolution, but when it comes to Lenin, uh, I doubt that you should start your description of a historical persona by describing how awesome this man was for three books. So th- this is this is this is where confusion begins in this episode. Yeah. Well, usually when you um start reading about somebody and you're immediately running into this sort of hagiography, this, this, um, you know, treating someone as if they're a a saint or a hero. To me, that should be, uh, pardon the the term, a red flag to make you kind of have a little bit of uh, skepticism because that's not normal and it's probably bullshit. Well, for the most part, also a red flag in this episode. Excellent. Um, yeah, now, um, what we can get from Lenin's, Lenin's eye, eyewitness accounts and everything... See, Lenin starts to basically hang around for a bit after, his, his finish, after he's finished college and after, after this, this murder, murder of his brother. Well, he calls it murder, it was an execution, which is essentially murder if you, if you think about it. But um, for a year, he works, um, he works as an aide to a state lawyer, Nikolai Hardin. But then he just quits the job and moves to St. Petersburg from his near Volga thing. The interesting part is when he quits the job. He quits the job in 1893, you know. Turns 17, finishes, like, college things, goes to have the big life. But also, at this year, a huge, huge, massive famine is there in Russia in winter, like uh, all of all of the all of the near Volga oblast is is completely hit by it, and even though Lenin isn't harmed by it because he comes from a quite a wealthy family, like up, upper upper echelons of society up there, everyone's basically starving at this point around there, and you know as usual it's it's everyone's everyone knows each other in. in in the district I pre- at that time, because there are not, not so many people, and, and his father is a prominent figure in the educational system. 
So, you know, there, there are people who are just walking around and, you know, gathering, gathering donations to, you know, feed the poor. Because a uh, state isn't doing anything to feed the poor, because it's 1893, and uh, what state support? Those are barely humans. They don't have human rights in Russia, remember that. So, Mr. Ilyich, our good old friend Lenny, decides that instead of supporting his family for this, he writes to the local newspaper that uh, we shouldn't help we shouldn't help any farmers with their with their famine and this is totally wrong and he starts writing around his first communistic ideologies there basically he stated that <clears throat> all this all these massive problems that were caused by this you know l lack of of grain are actually created by <clears throat> evil capitalists and foul bourgeoisie and, you know, but that is good that the peasants are starving and they are very, very desperate. Because oh, uh, then they'll be more radical and they'll be more more eager to take up arms. Because, quote, only, only the peasants driven to the utter desperation will be ready for the revolution. Therefore, giving them food will, would be ideologically wrong. Starva <clears throat> starvation plays a progressive factor in all of this. So he uh, utterly, re utterly refuses to help anyone, and uh, basically yells at his family members who are trying to, trying to feed people around them. This is Lenin at seventeen. Yeah, that's a kind of personality type I think that we see a lot in those sorts of characters, where a, a lot of these revolutionary and intellectual types, when you look into the history of their personal lives, they're often horrible to the real people that are actually close to them they're often horrible to family members and to you know people that they have relationships with and so on and at the same time they often have the the writing and a rhetoric that's all humanitarian you know that it's all about the the greater good of humanity or the greater good of of the nation or the greater good of the working class or whatever and then when they actually deal with real life tangible people it's a totally different story and um, there's actually a, a very interesting book called The Intellectuals, I think it is the title, by Paul Johnson. And I, I can't remember, it's been a long time since I read that book. I don't remember if he talks about Lenin at all, but he definitely talks about Marx. And he looks into the biography of, of a lot of these revolutionary and intellectual types like Karl Marx and um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, people like that. And he exposes how often their own personal lives and personal behavior is completely at odds with the ideas they claim to stand for. So, you know, uh, Karl Marx claims to be for uplifting the working class. And yet anytime he had a he had personal contact with members of the working class, he tended to uh, treat them horribly. Um, Rousseau famously was for. Um, he advocated raising children in a more positive and loving and peaceful sort of a way, and yet he, his own children he consigned to an awful uh, French orphanage. Um, he impregnated a, a poor immigrant woman and treated her like garbage, you know. So, I mean, a lot of these characters are that way. And I think you could also see in the story that you just told the whole idea of like, the greater good, the whole idea of you've got to break eggs to make the omelet, you know? So yeah, yeah I mean, people have to starve, but it's for the greater goal of the revolution. So it's all good. 
I, I, but this this kind of goes through, I think, and you 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 make a really good point here because you know one thing that you you can call Lenin many names, but he was definitely completely zealous and, and he was a true believer of the cause. Yeah, I mean, and and that's he was a completely fanatical. I mean, only a person this fanatical could could do this. And uh, yeah, we we had a small discussion before the show, but basically, even more about his fanaticism is uh, evidenced by the fact that. He hated giving gifts to people. He hated all the birthdays and everything because he was just obsessed about doing the work done. But he did give gifts to them, but he thought the best gift to give to anyone whatsoever was a book with one specific rule that it was written by Lenin himself. And he was fanatical about giving books. He essentially went out of his... He often just walked around the street with a bunch of his, you know, bunch of material written by Lenin and then he used to just give it around to people. Like, hey, you look nice today, have have a pamphlet. Or, hey, it's your birthday, grandma. Have a book about socialism and how everything is terrible and how we should <laughs> totally cause... He did this, and he became, like, famous for this. Apparently, he obnoxiously, aggressively gave gifts to every for every possible occasion. He gave these books that he had written to everyone. The problem is... That I've I've read the I've read his like collected works, and the tangent here I I have an academical education I've I've gotten my master's degree. The problem is uh, you know I I'm kind of adept at at reading historical texts and all these all these documents about you know political philosophy. Problem is they're terrible books. They are at least. <laughs> The later the later Lenin gets in his writing, he gets slightly better, but uh, the, the, that's the biggest issue with reading Lenin, is that he's devastatingly boring. He makes uh, about he makes sentences that are, that are pages long. He goes into tangents mid sentence, and his chain of argumentation is nearly impossible to to follow. You know, you can do it on on short writings. But, you know, everyone reads Marx in detail. Like, Marx Marx wrote Capital, and you, you can read Capital, and you can follow what, follow the train of thought. You can follow what's going on. You can understand the ideology, ideology behind it. But there's a good reason why we only read Marx when studying uh, com- communistic philosophy at, at college here, at least in Latvia. I don't know if you, if you had to... But I guess you, you also should read Marx uh, in Humanities Abroad. But we never read Lenin, and I was, and at one point I started started thinking, but why? why? Why don't we just read Lenin? I mean, he wrote a ton of books, like insane amounts of material. There, he in his complete works there are twenty five volumes of them, and each of the book, each of these books is like you know, game like something you you'd expect from Game of Thrones. They're huge books, and when you start reading it, you understand that it's just illogical. It's it makes no sense. Just just as way as uh, I have also read Mein Kampf with commentaries and everything. Just just you know, it's a historical document. I want to know what's going on, and that also is a terrible book. I, ideologically, you know, he did terrible things, but I don't know. I think it's kind of a tradition. The more power hungry you are, and the the crazier your ideas, the worse the worse books you write. I presume. Is I don't know. That that's hey. interesting because. And I've not read much from Lenin other than I, I probably way back have read, you know, a few excerpts from from a few different essays and things from him, you know, translated into English. Um, I think I've read some of his uh, critiques of imperialism and a few other things. And as long enough ago, I honestly don't remember it very well. But it's interesting that, that you should say 
because I've all I've also read some I've not read all the way through, but I've read some bits and pieces of Mein Kampf as well. Um, and I definitely remember Mein Kampf being kind of stream of consciousness. It's almost like some guy who's just like really high ranting about stuff. But yeah, what, that's, what's, that, that's, that's the feel of Lenin as well. I mean, if he would give a speech to a crowd, it would, I guess, convey the emotions and rile up the crowd. But when you read it in, the, in a book form, then you're like, okay, when will what, this... <laughs> what I find really interesting is that so many on the intellectual left, including a lot of Western academics to this day, and who the hell knows how many of them have actually read Lenin firsthand anyway, but amongst a lot of the intellectual left, and most of the, the real academic intellectuals, at least in the States, are leftists of some sort... Lenin has this reputation as being this great mind, this brilliant intellectual. And of course, no one thinks of Hitler as a brilliant intellectual. And it's interesting to say that like their their writings are sort of comparable in being kind of incoherent and badly written. Um, why on earth would so much of, of Western academics consider Lenin this this brilliant writer and this this brilliant mind? Um that's an interesting question. Yeah, and this is and this is kind of interesting because uh, I'll, I'll get to this later. I, I found the direct quote about the the Lenin's book givings, and this will be amazing. <clears throat> the great leader gave his works to his relatives and acquaintances with a <clears throat> maniacal relentlessness. Hmm. Yeah, that calls to mind a, a quote from Winston Churchill, I believe, who said. Um, a fanatic is someone who can't change their mind and won't change the subject. So the the person who's who's pushing their ideas, even when it's clearly not uh, appropriate or when it's clearly not a person who's interested or receptive to them. Um, that's something, you know, I, I obviously have my own strong beliefs and whatever, but I don't go pushing them on random people who haven't asked for them and aren't at all interested you know when i'm talking to my grandma i don't start ranting to her about anarchism or something you know um and it well, seems like these these hardcore true believer types um you know the sorts of people who are willing to do things like employ mass violence for their ideas um they often are that way where they'll just they'll just push their ideas on people who are not even remotely interested where it's wildly inappropriate well, basically, but, but this this is going to continue throughout because um, and I because see Lenin goes gets his degree from Saint Petersburg through mail through various various hijinks and starts to type out these revolutionary things. Then Lenin's dad dies, and his dad, being a wealthy person, left two thousand ruble, uh, two thousand ruble inheritance to his family. And uh, two thousand rubles was insane amounts of money for that time. It's, uh, I guess I don't know. Um, imagine two thousand dollars in eighteen ninety three money. A ruble at that time was uh, worth more than a dollar. It was also based on gold standard, but it was worth worth more. I, I guess it's it's comparable to us to some sense. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a lot of money. Essentially, for two thousand dollars, for two thousand rubles in eighteen ninety three, you can feed your family for years and buy a house, and you know, like you're you're a you're a rich person in in that time. Lenin takes his part of that money and decides to screw this. I'm gonna travel around Europe. 
Because he decides that, hey, let's let's just just do things. Oh, also another thing, another income of Lenin was that after his father died, as he was essentially, I, he was a noble, but he was a he was a bureaucrat noble, and that's one of the weirdest concepts which we spoke about last time too. The fact that once you reach a certain rank in bureaucracy, you instantly become a noble. You get to write, you you get to write to buy serfs. Awesomeness. So Lenin, uh, Lenin receives a stipend from the state because his father has died, like together with the rest of Kamali, but some money for him. And Lenin's mom owned a farm in the countryside, which she really, really tried to give to Lenin for a bit. But so before Lenin leaves with his money and his education, which he received, and he had worked as an aide to a lawyer for about a year or so by this point. But before he leaves, his mom decides, hey, uh, that that Lenin kid, well, by this point, he's our friend Ilyich. Uh, Lenin is, uh, you know, being being rude and rowdy. Hey, let's send him to the countryside. You know, I have this farm there. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll you know, do some farming life. And seeing how all this workers, proletariat farming thing is important, you might imagine that, you know, Lenin had lived farming life, so he knew the experience. Well, that's a bit of a bit of a problem. See, Lenin really kind of gave it a try, but he didn't know anything about farming, that's first. Secondly, he managed to get really hated by everyone around him, because he, previously, he'd been speaking about, you know, letting them all starve. Which meant that actually local farmers from the area uh, stole two cows from Lenin. And uh, Lenin apparently got into fights over this. And he was way more interested into doing anything else but actually taking care of his farm. Wait a second, so he... wait a second. You're saying he got upset because someone else confiscated his private property? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, yeah, apparently his uh, his fellow farmers from around the district just stole two cows, for, stole two cows from him, yeah. Hey, how, how does he know that they didn't need those cows more than he did? I don't know. This is... This is what I got, but this is hilarious on its own. Yeah. Lenin tries farming. Lenin fails. Yeah. Lenin tries being a lawyer. Nope. Yeah. Len- Lenin's life is, is, is all this all this thing about this. Also, all this time throughout this, Lenin, the great liberator, he was supposed to run the farm and he had a lot of money. And, you know, people... And this, this owning of a farm moment, of course, was portrayed in Soviet media and Soviet propaganda books as something that, you know, heroic Lenin learns agriculture and evil monarchist farmers betray him at every step. But, you know, actually from documentation, we know that basically he had hired some some random servants to, to work on his property. While during the short time he spent at the farm, he basically got into fights with neighbors, he hunted, and he, he was a he, avid mushroom picker. He picked mushrooms in the forest. And that's about it. Yeah, it sounds like backbreaking labor. Well, see, and this is the problem with this episode. Lenin doesn't do anything. Lenin is lazy. We, I guess, I guess the name of this episode is Lenin. Lenin is lazy for a while, and things. But yeah, basically, after this, he the, the farm is sold. He gets a he gets money. He has his. He also is a lawyer by this point. 
So he has, he has his money and then he goes around with him and there's a lot of Russian intelligentsia and all these social democrats everywhere around places and Lenin speaks a lot of languages too because like I mentioned in the first episode of this series Lenin spoke fluent, fluent French, uh, fluent German, he was really really educated. He was smart but he was a kind of a jerk. Now we have, and he also, you know, he, he travels around Europe, he reads on Marxisms, he actively participates as a hardcore revolutionary in every social democratic meeting, every socialist meeting ever. He goes to, to Switzerland, he goes to, to France, he just travels around Europe for a bit. And we have, like, testimonies from these people whom he met. You know, because he goes to every meeting he can he get his hands on, quite possibly just to hang, hang, hand out more of his books, you see. So, there are testimonies about him, about what Westerners of the time thought about him, and uh, he spent about 10 years there. Then he would later come back, then, then he would return, return to Russia, then he would spend more years abroad. But basically, while he spends there, he hangs around Europe and writes more of these completely theoretical and insanely hard to comprehend essays and, and texts. He just, he just writes, he just pumps them out non-stop, because he is extremely prolific, and I have to give him that. And apparently he creates constant scenes, drama, and fights around the social democratic societies and leftists throughout Europe. He couldn't stand Western leftists. Uh, my, my sources say that, <clears throat> quote, almost every meeting or congress ended with a proper yelling, rudeness, uh, like swearing at each other, and, and uh, quite a lot, of, a lot of these interested people just leaving, leaving the whole, whole event, uh, stating that it's impossible to even work together with this <clears throat> usurper Lenin. Because Lenin arrives and he wants to be the boss there. And so the le leftists of Western Europe, where he's traveling, just can't stand him because, yay, he supports our ideas and he's a social democrat. But this guy is such a pain in the ass. Everyone hates him. Lenin himself, although about all of this, writes in his diaries <clears throat> that he's extremely happy about all of this because the more these people with their wrong communist thoughts leave, the bigger are the chances of Ilyich to become the true leader of socialism. Wow. And another great quote about Lenin and uh, his relationships with his fellow man uh, was, was created by like this. <clears throat> quote, Well, firstly, his rudeness was repulsive. It was also mixed together with an enormous ego. Uh, kind of despicable attitude towards the partner of your conversation and some sort of high-mindedness and, and, con and visible condescending towards someone with whom he spoke, especially if, if someone disagreed with him. In arguments, he wasn't ashamed not only to be rude and vulgar, but uh, even, even allowed himself to basically, basically com do complete ad hominems towards his opponent. Therefore, as far as I remember, Lenin never had close friends. He had his comrades, he had his uh, psychophants, who, who kind, of, kind of praised him and forgave everything. But yeah, he's this condescending man whom, whom, not, whom people just can't like personally at all. 
And one of the one of the shortest and the most like most interesting and kind of precise, you know, the, there are these sentences about about Lenin. It was given by one of the by a poet Ivan Bunin uh, during the very first months of the Soviet power, which will come later. But you know, it's still there, it's already there. And Ivan Bunin wrote about this essentially this quote: "Soviet Congress speech of Lenin. Wow, now that's an animal." So I, it's it's interesting enough because I I think if Lenin was alive today he wouldn't like modern day leftists at all. He would go to the meetings, he would give out the books, and and then people would and then he would start calling people names and forcing them to leave or something. What what I want to know is, I've often heard that Lenin, you know, aside from in academia here, he's often treated as a as a brilliant thinker. I've often heard things to the effect that he had some sort of charisma, um, and yet at the same time, as you're describing him, he sounds extremely unlikable. And so, I don't know. Can you can you kind of square that circle of? I'm guessing he must have had some sort of personal charisma. Well, I guess so. But, he, he he spoke with the masses, apparently. But, so he, he was a good speech giver, but just bad at kind of one-on-one interpersonal relations? Yeah, yeah, of course, because uh, he, he really was... I, I guess when it came to small groups, he would be really annoying. But but if you would look at him from this, this podium, and you would be in this Russian farmer situation, then, yeah, I, I guess I guess it's... I guess it would be like that, the fact that you can he could influence large crowds, but he was terrible personally. For one, he had later, he later had a major arguments with Stalin, which uh, often are turned in uh, a lot of history books, often are turned into some, some argument, uh, especially in the era of destalinization in Soviet history books. Uh, he later in his life will have struggles with Stalin, personal struggles about a lot of lot of issues, because uh, weirdly enough, <laughs> all of out of all the things, Lenin was not a Russian supremacist. Stalin was, however, even though Stalin was Georgian himself, weirdly enough. St- Lenin was a true internationalist. He did terrible things, but, you know, uh, he wasn't a national nationalist in any way or form. And uh, because of this, they had a lot of fights with Stalin. And later, of course, all of this in the era of destalinization is portrayed as good Lenin fights against the uh, rights and does things against evil Stalin and they have this conflict and everything. But yeah, when you think about it, Stalin even got to power because, uh, which many people might not know, but we'll get to Stalin too. I, I'm planning on doing. I'm planning going through with this for a long time. You see, uh, Stalin met Lenin when he was still known by his nickname Koba. After he had left his seminary, where he was supposed to be an Orthodox priest, he decided to rob banks. He kind of got a run-in with Lenin and decided to fund this little guy. I mean, hey, it's fun. I'll rob banks and give money to Lenin. And Lenin was happy because, hey, it's just bourgeoisie who are like, uh, who are like just, just being robbed. So yeah, later he got into a bit of a pickle with Koba. So that, that's, that's another evidence of all of this. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point that you bring up the whole um, good Lenin, bad Stalin dichotomy because that's another thing again from my perspective here in the states that you often get from uh, some of the leftist intellectuals and you know not I don't mean to say that all the leftist intellectuals and academics over here are 
are actually, you know, full on communists. Not all of them are, but from the, those who are or who are sympathetic to communism, that's what you often get is even when you can get them to admit that Stalin was a mass murdering bastard and, and was horrible, they'll they'll always spin it with, oh, but if only if only Lenin hadn't died when he did, and if only Stalin, like, they, they want to, because Stalin was so obviously awful, and it's hard even for leftists to deny that, they then want to act like that means that Lenin must have been good. Even if you want to say that by body count, Stalin was a bit worse. Um, the fact that Stalin is bad doesn't mean that Lenin was good. <laughs> like, what if they're both bad? And but, even, I gotta say, uh, ep- Epic Rap Battles of History, I don't know, um, have you ever watched Epic Rap Battles of History on YouTube? Yes, and I have to say Winston Churchill totally beat uh, totally beat Teddy Roosevelt, even though <laughs> I like Teddy. Yeah, well, um, my, my favorite one, by the way, is the one that starts off as Spielberg versus uh, Hitchcock, and then all the other movie directors jump in, um... But anyway, that one of the ones that I thought was pretty good was they did one. It's listed as, I think, Rasputin versus Stalin. And actually, what ends up happening is that as it goes on, if, if you've not seen this one, um, I'm sure you'd get a kick out of it. It starts off as Stalin versus Rasputin, I think. And no, then no, no, as I, it, I, I know what you're talking about. It starts as uh, Macedonian Alexander versus Ivan, Ivan IV. And then it escalates through mass murders, I presume, and gets to something. Um, no, no, no. The, the one I'm talking about, I think it just oh. starts with Stalin versus Rasputin. Oh. And then Lenin jumps in, um, and then Gorbachev, and then Putin. And I might be messing up the order that they jump in, but um, but what's really interesting, and it's, it's a very, very funny epic rap battles, but what's really interesting is, even in that, they kind of portray Lenin as the good guy and they have Lenin saying something along the lines of like damn it Stalin I had this awesome revolution going and then you hijacked it and ruined it so even epic rap battles of history of all places is uh, susceptible to this myth of bad Stalin good Lenin well well, I don't know I don't know how good Lenin was because he was um, by this point in history he was you know, the, the peasant situation in Russia is getting worse and worse. Less, they have less and less rights. And he's trying to lead these Bolsheviks throughout, you know. After he's gone through Western Europe, he's gotten quite a lot of acquaintances. Well, those who stuck around after he kicked out everyone else. And so he's he's managed to wiggle his way and start all this Bolshevism by this point. Which uh, at this point has been called Socially Democratic Party, but that's beside the point. He writes uh, from his emigration to his people in Russia letters, and these letters are all in his combined works. And uh, when you read them, it's kind of funny, because he openly calls for, quote, assault on banks, uh, rob them to acquire more money uh, so that we can, we can finance the uprising. And you know what? Gangs and uh, gangs all over the Russia basically uh, basically followed all of him. And in the time from 1905 up to 1907, the the period of the 1905 revolution, uh, in the Caucasus region alone, there were five five huge bank robberies. Uh, after which, basically, totally about about 700,000 rubles were stolen, which was just astronomical amounts. Like, 2,000 2000 rubles allowed you to travel all over Europe, basically. 700,000 rubles were just insane amounts. 
but the biggest of these robberies, clearly instigated by Lenin and to finance the communism, was in Moscow, where the revolutionary bandits with Koba, uh, our friend whose name you should remember, also <laughs> Mr. later known as Stalin, uh, happened to like rob from a bank in Moscow 875,000 rubles. The thing is, Lenin was ecstatic about all of this. Because uh, this was one of the last robberies going on there. But Lenin is just sitting and being happy. Look, look, we're stealing all the bourgeoisie money from the banks. It's gonna be awesome. We shoot, we shoot people and take their money to, to give all the money to all the people. It's awesome, isn't it? Now, the thing is, this is, this is the one point where Lenin became extra furious. Because his colleagues in Moscow, by the, after this robbery decide that, oh, oh, like, guys, guys, this is a bit too much, this is Moscow, and this is, like, so much money that this is just insane, and we will, we will get squashed down, because, you know, the cops won't let us go, they'll find us and kill us all, and they start to massively panic, and I just imagine this, you know, it's Russia, it's uh, early 20th century, and you're in one of these communist cells, and you walk into your room, and, and you open the door and say, Ivan, what is this? And Ivan says, well, you know, the, the, Look, look, we have this this much money, and the money possibly covers like half of the room. And then 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 let's call it let's call him Oleg. Oleg slowly closes the door, steps back and the and says just to himself, well fuck. Or something of that sort. Essentially they they, while Lenin was in absence, uh, quietly voted and signed a small revolution which basically stated, yeah, let's not rap banks anymore. We um, are in a bit of a trouble here with the with the authorities now. Because this whole thing, remember, there are massive robberies like this. And at the same time, they are supposed to be covert and preparing for the real attention. Because, yeah, all, all these financing issues are alone just, just, just a crazy thing. But this isn't the weirdest thing about how communists acquired money for the revolution. Oh, no, no, no. And this is, this is the special case. Lenin is away, but he's actively writing letters to everyone, and and this is this is a special tale, also documented, of course. Essentially, Lenin finds out that there are two sisters, two ladies, which are the sisters of one of the one of the major Russian factory owners who has recently deceased, and they apparently were were kind of they inherited large amounts of money. Of course, Bolsheviks want all that money, even though they have, like, insane amounts of money by this point. Bolsheviks decide that, you know, they, they choose from their ranks, with approval by Lenin, to extra, extra classy-looking revolutionaries. Like, they, they, they pick the guys whose posters you can stamp on t-shirts, like Che or something. They pick two of them, and their, and their task was to basically woo these ladies, get them to marry them, and as soon as they're married, they would instantly acquire the inheritance, which they had then signed a which they had signed a paper that they would instantly transfer it to the coffers of the Communist Party. Now, the problems began because one of these guys, when he actually saw the money, categorically refused to, you know, give any of it to his communist comrades. I mean, he's living the good life now. 
and he actually now and the, the the other guy also kind of seeing this was was more like skeptical about all of this. What happens next is crazy because uh, our glorious communist people went to these families and uh, like literally threatened them, threw rocks at the windows, breaks broke stuff, and essentially caused trouble to, for them as if they were a communist as a, as if they were a bank. One of these, one of these, uh, one of these couples managed to escape outside the country. But other one wasn't so lucky, and at the end had to had to actually part with with the money. Well, some of it. He made a deal that he would only give about half of the money to the communist party. Nobody cared about how the ladies felt, obviously. Well, sure. <laughs> so you know, I so I I read I read all of these all of these facts here. And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, sh should I make a show where I factually describe precise dates, when and how Lenin goes to Paris and when he goes to Zurich? Or or this? And this is just, just something that blew my mind and why, why this episode isn't as conventional as usual, I presume. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, that's that's very revealing. I mean, it just shows you the sorts of people who don't look at other human beings as as sort of equals in the sense of rights and respect and all these sorts of things. They look they look at other human beings as means to use for their ends. They look at other human beings as pawns to be played for their own game. And you know, I'm sure that that Lenin and many of the others on some weird level believed in the idea of a greater good and an eventual utopia. But at the same time, they're such, like you said, true believers that they're willing to kind of do anything to people that they see as means to get there. You know, they're willing to throw under the bus, whoever has to be thrown under the bus and they break all these, all these eggs. And then somehow you never even end up with the damn omelet. Well, yeah. And, uh, See, this is this is where we'll end our, our factual part, and I, I want to discuss more of a theory because Lenin and, and and these are just a couple of couple of anecdotes and stories and, and eyewitness accounts about Lenin and his youth when he travels around in both in because he basically short version is travels around Europe, comes back uh, comes back for a bit for 1905-1907 revolution, travels around, gets exiled from Russia in 1907, escapes the authorities, travels again around. And we last see him before he returns to Russia in Zurich, where he's getting financed by the German Imperial, Imperial Germany. That's what he does. But even though there are tons of lists of places where he went and specific congresses he did, this is what happened. This is the feel of it, which I think must be understood. Because 
After all of this, when he'll come back and he'll actually finish the revolution, which I'll get next time, he'll start to write letters such as this one, and I quote here. <clears throat> Comrades, the revolt of kulaks in five oblasts must be, must be crushed without mercy. It is necessary for revolution, because now the final, uh, the final and decisive battle with the kulaks has begun. We must show example. Number one, hang them. In, in kind of uh, additionally write, written as note, uh, it's important to hang these people in a way that the people would see. You should hang no less than 100 kulaks, rich people, the bloodsuckers. 2. Publish their names. 3. Take away all their, uh, all their food stocks, like all the grain, everything they have. 4. Take hostages in accordance with the order given yesterday. Do it in such a way so that uh, hundreds of uh, so that in, so that around this uh, so that in an area of a hundred miles around all this everyone would know it. They would see it. They would basically uh, be very very afraid of it, and they would uh, they would in fanatic and they would scream very fanatically, uh, kill and destroy these blood sucking kulaks. Please telegraph me about how you how you how you acquired this and how you will fulfill this. Get tougher people. Dot. Your Lenin. <laughs> End of telegram. So this is amazing. And uh, one thing that I'll post this is that this is even seen in uh, like Soviet propaganda movies and everything. And and Lenin grows from this kind of mean child. But when his when his bro when his brother gets hanged and when he gets into this all this Marxism because he just absorbs everything while he's in this Western Europe. And when the revolution of 1905 happens. It's just insane. He basically starts to kill people and, and, and everything, and, and he writes about... Oh, another one of his telegrams, and this was from 1980, was... It is necessary to start, to start a violent mass terror against kulaks, priests, and all of their supporters. And, and this, is, this is kind of crazy, because uh, all the persons who are uh, even a bit conspicuous must be put into concentration camps outside the cities. That's 1918, people. I wonder how much of Lenin's hatred for the Kulaks was a matter of just jealousy because he had been such a shitty farmer and obviously the Kulaks were good at it. <laughs> yeah, like, those filthy Kulaks, they took my cow! They took my cows and they grew some shit and I, I couldn't figure it out. Mushrooms don't mushrooms grow themselves, you bastards. <laughs> Wheat must do that too. I don't know. This is this is this is one of these things where I just need to laugh and delve into black humor because this is this is a person who led the biggest country on planet Earth and people really looked at him as the bringer of hope. I mean, you can drive you can actually interestingly enough you can you can look at some biblical parallels even here with, with him and Lucifer to a point. Sort of. If you want to, because uh, really, by this point, uh, by by the point by the point he takes his massive role in the Russian Revolution proper, when it really kicks off and and Mr. Nicholas II is is thrown out. Like last episode, I spoke about the atrocities of Nicholas II. Right now, it's the Lenin's turn. So, as as we will enter the revolution in the next episode properly, I hope. I hope that you listeners have now seen that there there are no good guys in this story. They're just 
and this this is what makes it funny you know nor normally when you try to do a story from a perspective of one side or the other one you you are always somehow biased but i just hate both of them so hey yeah and and then there's the other one that sometimes um uh western apologists at least will trot out and that's trotsky you know they'll they'll bring out trotsky and they'll say well stalin was was a jerk and a and a monster but trotsky if only trotsky had had been in charge instead you know um or they'll 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 point to the crimes of stalin and basically say yeah you see if only if only trotsky would have won that power struggle oh that's um, that's be that's, be that's because trotsky lost Okay, so so Trotsky lost, and he wasn't in the position to commit uh, commit any acts of terror. Yeah, although during the Civil War, my understanding is that Trotsky was really a monster. That he was one of the kind of architects of a lot of the the bloodiest things that happened during during the Russian Civil War. Well, obviously you had to be. I mean, you couldn't be on the good side of Tavarish Lenin if you weren't like this. Right. I mean, look look at what look at what orders Lenin gives you, okay? So I don't know. It's kind of a kind of interesting thing. And uh, a Russian philosopher, he uh, uh, Alexander Pyotrgorsky. Again, I mention him all the time because I love I love this person. And, you know, when when I read his books at first uh, for the first time, they seem to be like very theoretical. But the more I look at them, the the weirder it gets because he. He writes about how every every major revolution, if you have if you have a violent revolution with with very strong leaders, basically, or or something like that, if you if you become enough politicized about this, then they tend to turn into their opposites. Essentially, I mean, Nicholas II was a dictator, but then Lenin became this dictator figure, and I don't know. That is one of the well, that is one of the reasons why why kind of your American revolution, I guess, I guess is special because I don't know. You didn't well now you have basically corporations running running the place as far as i get it but uh i don't know because because this is this is an interesting fact because we can see in this uh, red revolution the fact how how the people turn into their opposites how for they fight for the kind of kind of these ideals but but it kind of goes sour yeah and in in a lot of revolutions the people who end up taking over rhetoric aside once they're in power a lot of times not only do they take on a lot of the characteristics of the regime that they overthrew but a lot of times they take a lot of the worst characteristics of the old regime and they just amplify it drastically you know so yeah the czar was was a bad guy and he had nasty secret police and all that and then the bolsheviks come in and they take all of the things the czar did that were bad and they crank them up to 11, you know, and they make the secret police way bigger and way worse. They execute way more people than the czar ever did. You know, um, we see a similar thing with, uh, with the Jacobins in the French revolution where they overthrow the king and yeah, the king's government wasn't good and had a lot of, you know, oppressive features and things wrong with it. But then next thing you know, the Jacobins are in charge, and they're executing people at an exponentially faster rate than the king ever did. You know, so um, there's a there's a song by the Who that a lot of people know. Um, the the British rock band the Who um, won't get fooled again, which has the the famous lines in it. It's basically kind of making fun of the whole idea of revolution, and it, and it says things like uh, "Meet the new boss, same as the old boss." You know, and my feeling is that in most cases, when you have a revolution, it's going to end up sooner or later being meet the new boss, same as the old boss, but a bit worse. Yeah, because 
this this is this is just very weird to know it, it it gets like there's always gonna be, i i i don't want to say it's always gonna be this new boss because there have been some communities where have there have been no bosses around on planet earth you might not know about them listener but they they're, they're they've been there i don't know what what was this very strange republic in in Italy, which people surprised you with. Oh yeah, yeah. To that, Google too. Yeah, yeah. That was one that I had and um, had never heard of before, and I started looking some stuff up about it. And based on what I found, it it looked very intriguing. It was, let me see here, the Republic of Cospea. It was in Italy, and it was this little little area that um, ended up not belonging to any state just because of accidents of history. Um, there had been a treaty worked out between the papal states and one of the other. This is back when Italy wasn't united, when it was a bunch of separate little countries. Um, and just by like, getting left out of a, of a treaty somewhere, this little place called Cospea was a little um, stateless society. They didn't really have a government. They They kind of had like a... Oh, almost like a local city council sort of a thing, but it wasn't really a state. And um, they seem to have done pretty well for, I think, a few centuries. So, you know, there there have been examples in, in history of people doing okay without rulers. I mean, when when I get up in the morning, I pretty much, you know, take care of my family and go to work and do what I need to do and pay the bills. And I do it all without a president or a prime minister or a general secretary or any of those things telling me what to do. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't really need them to take my money to bomb people I've never met either. Um, they just threaten me with prison if I don't pay. So I generally fork it over. Oh wow! Talking about bombs, this is this is one of the other because I I went through Lenin's articles and I wrote just just interesting scripts from this and uh, one of the quotes of Lenin is that, well I look I look with horror in my eyes truly with horror in my eyes that people speak about bombs already for half a year but they haven't made anyone yet and no one has been blown up. Work harder, comrades. End quote. Yeah. And yeah, he, he basically he has a bunch of quotes. Lenin, uh, while while things are going on in the early 1905, while well, while he's still not there, uh, Lenin instructed the people to like uh, throw throw their political enemies from the rooftops. Uh, some people should be stoned to death. Uh, poli policemen should be like boiling water should be powered over their heads. And you know, if you can get some some sulfuric acid, you should throw that in their faces too. Nice. That's exactly the kind of thing a great humanitarian who's building a just and loving utopia would do. I mean, this is... But I really like the bubble. It's like... I cannot imagine what kind of a person you have to be to write a political letter to your followers and you're building this worker's paradise where you, where you are angry at them for their laziness that they haven't committed any acts of terrorism yet. They need to build more bombs. Yeah, I don't know. This this sounds more like someone. I don't know. This this looks like a parody, really. Uh, all of all of these things look like a parody these days. I mean, you can imagine South Park putting the letters of Lenin into some. I don't know. ISIS bureaucrats. ISIS top tier bureaucrats sending letters to their lackeys with with these texts, and you would laugh at this because it would be on South Park. Yeah, yeah. But or, this or, happened. Or Team America, World Police. There's that that scene where. 
the guy goes undercover and he goes into a terrorist bar and it looks like, you know, almost like the bar from Star Wars, but it's full of terrorists. And he goes in and he's like, hey, my name's Ahmed and I'm a terrorist. Anyone in here looking to blow some stuff up? Because I really want to do some terrorism. You know, I mean, it's just like so outlandish. It does sound made up. In 1917, like, or like at one point in his life, in 1917 or early 1918, uh, I, I don't have a precise date, but apparently Lenin had been nominated to Nobel Peace Prize for the triumph of the ideas of peace because he had stopped, because uh, he had kind of taken Russia out of World War One. Yeah. Yeah, never mind why and what he then did internally in the country. <laughs> now, also, also Nobel Peace Prize. This is this is a personal rant here. Nobel Peace Peace Prize means way less than any other Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize in chemistry or other sciences, in my mind, is just way more valuable because those are decided by a scientific committee. Nobel Peace Prize is a uh, a random thing awarded in a, from a different institution around there. It, it's kind of weird. Nobel Peace Prize has been given to the weirdest people for the weirdest reasons, for even promises of things. And the biggest problem with the, with the Nobel Prize is that you have to be alive to get it. So you can't get Nobel Peace Prize after you know a lifetime of achievement. You have to give it to someone who is doing it right now. Yeah. And that just turns weird. I mean, Obama, Obama got Nobel Peace Prize, and even though I have quite a lot of good things to speak about President Obama as well, I do have to mention that he's so far a president who has been at war for a whole eight years of his term. Yeah, yeah. Him getting the Nobel Peace Prize, I mean, it's not quite as Orwellian as, as Lenin getting it, but it's, it's in that... He, Lenin, Lenin, Lenin was just nominated oh, okay, yeah. at the last moment. Someone, someone sane actually looked at this paper and was like, what the hell are you doing, guys? Okay, well, yeah, when Obama got it, first off, when Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize, I think he had been president for like three months, you know? He had, he had just barely been sworn in and they gave it to him. And they gave it to him basically based on he gave some nice sounding speeches. He had done nothing concrete to really bring about better world peace or anything and then also if i remember correctly while he was giving his nobel peace prize acceptance speech i believe a drone strike ordered by him uh blew up a wedding party or something in you know one of the places where american drones blow people up either pakistan or yemen or one of these places so you know as the guy is accepting the peace prize he's sending a flying robot to blow up people most of whom were probably just you know unfortunate innocent bystanders so i mean you can't make this stuff up one of the weird themes of all all these these series in my show is that not not i don't know people are people have to be more subtle about their ways i think in, in all, all ways of life than, than back then but it's it's kind of weird Oh, and one other thing which will surprise you, CJ, mind you. Another weird fact about Lenin, up until even his role in revolution. You'll be surprised to know that in 1917, most Russians, most Russian communists didn't even know Lenin existed. Even during the Civil War, when Lenin was the head of the Soviet government, most of the Soviet communists around didn't even know who he was. Hmm. He was the dude who wrote to his circle, who gave some speeches, but he never he never made made it that big. 
he got big after this era in the next few years in the intermediate period between wars when massive propaganda machines started working and there's a simple reason for this most russians couldn't read or write in 1917 at all and lenin was away so as weird as it seems lenin was giving his orders to people to the closest circle and then the closest circle dissipated them further and they knew that they were fighting for this ideal but the man lenin as he's seen as this face of communism right now, during the dawn of all this era, he was not there. He was just, you know, yeah, we, we, who, Lenin, Lenin who? Oh, that guy? But he's in Switzerland. Oh, well, must be important. Someone knows him. Okay, well, whatever, man. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why I don't have that many communist eyewitness accounts about Lenin from Russians because Lenin's wife Krupskaya spent her life actually doing even doing a weirdly noble cause Lenin's wife Krupskaya actually deserves more of a humanitarian title than Lenin himself because all she did and she's way less known than Lenin himself Lenin's wife spent a boring life but she basically taught people how to read she worked in a factory and then she gathered all the factory workers after that and taught them how to read of course only the only thing she had to give people to read was you know Lenin's writings but hey it was something so she wasn't as widely known but she she spent her life being like actually humanitarian and like I said, I hope, I hope that by this point in our conversation you understand why I got really confused while making this episode. Because when you, because there are, there are, the, there are these moments, and I'm sure, I'm sure you'll agree with me, CJ, because there are moments when you want to do, want to do an episode on something, uh, and, and then there's not enough stuff to talk about, and then you, and that's, and that's bad, but when there is just insane amounts of sources, then you're in trouble as well. And this is just time period, and Lenin is documented. Lenin is one of the most documented people in history, I think. We have everything he has written ever. And it's just right there. And we have everything about him, but there's just so much of, of it. I, I don't even know. And yeah, it's, it's, it, it just got, got me very confused. But I want to ask you a specific question now. When, when I think about it. Yeah, we have everything Lenin ever wrote. There, there's a huge 25 volume set, and I'm pretty sure that's public. That, that's that's common, like without without any authorship rights ever available on the internet. Why do people idolize him then? Because you can like open up one of his books, read about the terror, read about the bombs and the funny, very dark humor stuff, close it, have a good uh, snicker in yourself, and then just live your day. What do these people have not read him or something? Yeah, I mean, I would suspect I'm I'm the first to admit I've not read very much by Lenin, um, but I'm. Oh, you shouldn't. He's <laughs> he's he's a terrible well, writer. I, I'm also I what seems to be a rare sort of person in that I readily admit when I've not read something or not read somebody, and it seems like there's a lot of people walking around, and I you know can primarily speak for the states. I don't know if it's different elsewhere, but. In, in America, there's a lot of people walking around, some of whom have impressive-looking degrees and credentials, and some of whom are just kind of random average people, who have very strong opinions about, um, 
you know, books that they've never read. You know, people who've got really strong opinions about the Bible who've never actually read the thing. People who've got really strong opinions about Karl Marx who've never actually read anything by Karl Marx. People who've got really strong opinions about Charles Darwin who've never read anything by Charles Darwin and so on and so on. I mean, almost any, like, big author or big book you can think of, there's a crap ton of people walking around who have really strong opinions on it who have not even read one page of of that book. Um, So, you know, I think that's just a general problem with people overall, that that people would rather pretend to know something that they don't know than simply admit that, oh, I've not read that or I don't really, I've never researched that or whatever. And so I think a lot of the people who are walking around thinking that Lenin's a great guy and whatever – um, have probably read little or nothing that he actually said, that he actually wrote. Well, yeah, I, I, I've, I've noticed this uh, situation, and especially, and I've, I've also noticed that a lot of these people who pretend to be these extra specialists are usually very pretentious about what they have read. They're, they're the kind of, you know, there, there was in the Soviet era, and Soviet era books are really cheap, and there was this, uh, there, there was this similar category of people because you know you you had to like show your status around as and and you had like no one had any wealth to flaunt so you had to show that you were like really really smart so people just tended to buy all sorts of books because they were cheap and you looked smarter and the people just bought books in, in these huge volumes and the only way how I obtained these Lenin's combined works is Lenin was a different thing you know you you basically bought all the books from Lenin put them in put them in your shelf never read them if someone if, if, if the nice man from KGB came to your apartment they saw oh well you have Lenin's combined works there well you must be a communist you would live in peace. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people have a like, bunch of classics and all sorts of books in their shelves which they just buy for show. And that, that's that's kind of weird for me. But hey, that's how I got my Soviet library. And I do have to admit, by, by this point, I am wor- well-versed in, like, what? Um, history, especially Soviet history, philosophy, and journalism. Some political events. I don't think I have much knowledge in anything else. Yeah, well, oh no, I can fi- I can I can fix my plumbing. Well, that's good. <laughs> at, at least some of the knowledge is is uh, useful. It's it's not all just abstract uh, theoretical stuff. I guess so. I don't know. This is this is one of the kind of practical things. Oh, we're we're getting by the way an election here soon uh, as well in Latvia. And we have some, you know, when you when you read these things, one thing they always think about are is uh, political political advertisements, because all these Lenin's Lenin's writings and all these political writings of that era can, actually can be viewed as political advertisements. I mean, think about it. it. There was no political vote for this party culture back when people just you know wrote letters to newspapers for a certain cause. I mean. You know, we have we have a bunch of interesting, weird sets of letters to, to newspapers and and books published about this. This is some sort of political advertising. I think so. I at least treated this that, that way. Because I thought about how political advertisement was born. So. Yeah. Well, you know, it's designed to kind of influence public uh, perceptions and you know guide what what the masses will will support. So makes sense. Well, yeah. Well, we've gotten quite far into this confused episode. Okay, I guess I guess it's kind of time to wrap up. If you have any comments or anything, oh yeah, we didn't mention Russian anarchists. Well, if you wanted to speak about them, you can do so now, or if not, promise me you'll do an episode on them. 
and I'll send everyone there because, uh, in, in fact, Russian anarchism is is a very interesting thing which many people around these areas don't know, even though everyone here... See, you had Che Guevara in your t-shirts in America. Over here we had Bakunin saying Anarchy Mach Paryatk or Anarchy is the Mother of Order by Bakunin. He was kind of the national national punk scene guy. But uh, Bakunin and other anarchists, especially Le Lev Tolstoy. Yeah, weirdly enough, Lev Tolstoy was an anarchist. You wouldn't have never expected. But um, Russian anarchism is something that I would love you talking about because... I have to admit, I'm I haven't researched that part yet. I know some things because I hang I hung out with punks and metalheads in my childhood, and I was one. So, but yeah, yeah. There's there's different strains of anarchism, and I think most of the Russian anarchists were a little bit more, um, you know, communist anarchist or socialist anarchist or collectivist anarchist or whatever you want to call it or anarcho syndicalist, which you know isn't isn't my personal flavor. Um, that said, you know, I, I generally sympathize with them more than I sympathize with the Bolsheviks. Um, and I'll, I'll just share the, the one Bakunin quote that I can remember, and it's been a while since I've read Bakunin, but um, the one Bakunin quote that I can remember, because I, I agree with this 100%, Bakunin said, if you take the most ardent revolutionary and vest him with absolute power, Within a year, he would be worse than the czar himself, which, you know, he wrote that. He, he died in, what, the 1870s or 1890s, something like that. So he was way back, you know, decades before the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, he already saw what would happen, that once these people got power, they'd be worse than the czar. Yeah, because weirdly enough, and uh, this might shock you listeners, because I, I don't expect you listeners to be familiar with anarchism, philosophy, and things like that, but you'll be surprised 90% of all the anarchists and influential writers are absolute pacifists. Yeah. Anarchism, just because people tell you on the internet that anarchists are, you know, your typical angry punks from the media, no. Anarchism is, as far as I know, and I don't, and I don't agree with with anarchism with all the, the writings, obviously, because there are many different strains of it. Anarchists are the most pacifistic, nice guys you can find. Yeah, most of the time that's true. I mean, I've I've gone to um, events and festivals here where a lot of the people there are anarchists of one type or another, and I mean, you won't find more friendly people who. You know, they're not all pacifists. Some of them, like me, believe in a right to self-defense. Well, I'm, yeah, I um, mean, right to self-defense is... Against... Uh, what, I meant with, what I meant with pacifism is that you don't, you don't want to go aggressively out and oppress other people to follow anarchism. Yeah, ex exactly. Because that's stupid. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oppo opposed to aggression, opposed to, to being the aggressor, um, I think is, is a good way to put yeah, it. That, that's, which that's, which that's generally means... Yeah, which generally means being opposed to state violence because... Most of the time, state violence is aggression or is built on aggression or built on the threat of aggression. Um, the only, I guess, maybe you could say sort of state violence that isn't built on aggression is if another state is invading a state and the state is fighting a truly defensive war, I suppose you could argue that that is defensive, but um, but there's really not much else the state does that isn't built on one level or another on, on aggression. So... Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, the people who grab all the attention 
are the self-proclaimed anarchists who are, you know, the jackasses out in the street um, lighting small businesses on fire and beating up innocent people in riots and what have you. And, um, you know, to think that those people represent most anarchists is uh, completely not true. And in fact, probably most of the ski mask wearing jackasses, if you sat them down and asked them to explain the philosophies of anarchism, you would get nothing or at least get nothing that made any damn sense. Yeah, I guess, because uh, I don't know. My my problem with this is, oh, and we're, we're getting into long this here, but what I, what I think is that people... People sometimes tend to care too much about what other people think or do with themselves in their private lives. That's where the problem starts. When you are not just happy about how you live your day, but you, you need to poke him, you need to poke that other person and tell him, you're doing it wrong. And then groups of them come together, form a state and tell this, this other person, hey, we don't like what you're doing here, stop doing it, it's wrong. That, I think, is the problem. I mean, as long as it's not hurting anyone else, you should be able to do whatever you please, in my eyes. Well, I agree with that. Ah, and with and with this on this positive note, let us finish this episode, which is, which is apparently very chaotic, but I hope it makes some sense. At least we spoke about some nice things at the end. Okay. CJ, any last words for you? Please go visit Prof, uh, Prof CJ's uh, Dangerous History Podcast dot org. Um, yeah, they or profcj.org. They can Prof go to profcj.org or dangeroushistorypodcast.com. Either of those two oh. things will take you to the same place. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.